Hello, and welcome to the Renaissance Podcast. Thank you for joining us to worship and learn more about God as we all pursue Him together as a community. For more podcasts and services about past weeks, or to join us online on Sunday mornings, check out the Church at Home page at rendecatur.org. Or come connect with us in person on Sunday mornings in downtown Decatur. Now, enjoy the message. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Brian Atwood, and uh, I'm a member here along with my wife, Melanie. We've been coming here for about two years and uh, joined membership about three months ago. So Jeff asked me this morning to uh, pray for um, our kids um, from pre-K all the way through college. We're going to be starting school. I know for some of the kids that's not a, a positive thing, I think. So, But we're going to be praying for the kids, and we're going to be praying for the parents and the teachers and then uh, I will uh, say our, go through the scripture um, before Jeff uh, uh, delivers the message. So if you could bow your heads, we'll, uh, we'll uh, pray to God. So Father God, we just, uh, we just thank you, Lord. We just thank you that we can be here in this time of worship. And uh, Father God, we just have a special prayer for you today that we, uh, we ask for your protection, Lord. We ask for your protection for our students. We ask for protection for our teachers. We ask for protection for our parents, Lord. We ask for protection for the simple things of evil that could be bullying, it could be prejudice, Lord. It could be acts of violence, Lord. We ask that protection as we enter this school year. Father God, we ask you protection for, we ask for guidance. We ask as the teachers go into this year that you give them the wisdom and the knowledge that will help them mold and shape the lives of, of the children, God. Um, we ask you for guidance for the teachers, and we ask you, we ask you guidance for the students, especially the students who are going off and away from home, and, and they have to make tough decisions that, that maybe they didn't have to make away from mom and dad pri previously. And finally, God, we just ask you for discipleship. And, and, and Jesus spoke, Lord, and we find in the Bible, and and that uh, you ask us to go and make disciples. And we ask that you make disciples of our young people, Lord. And knowing that through that guidance and that protection that you'll always be with them, God. And we just thank you, God. All this we in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So uh, today's passage, we're going to be in Luke 6, uh, 20 through 26, which is the beginning of the Beatitudes. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said... Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you for who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Thank you.
Ready? <laughs> I am more than ready. But I, I don't want to start. Uh, TJ was leading the last, he's finishing up Waymaker, the song before the last song. And I'm in the, worshiping in the back room, and I don't, I don't know about you, but I'm a pretty loud worshiper. I wear earplugs in the room. Anybody, any other earplug people in the room? I don't wear it for the volume of the music. I wear it because I don't want to hear you. I'll be honest with you. <laughs> don't, like, please don't hear that the wrong way. I mean that sincerely. And I wear earplugs, and I sing loud. And I sing loud, and TJ's singing Waymaker, and I'm like, his, his promised name is on the screens in front of us, and we're singing it, and I'm wondering if we see it. I wonder if we know it to be true. So I'm praying, I'm praying, I'm praying, praying, and I just sense the Lord come to the plate, come into this room. I just sense the Lord showed up, and so I wanted to get up on stage and scream that, not knowing that TJ picked for the next song, the Lord is in this place. So <laughs> kudos to you, TJ. All that to say, I think the Lord is here. And um, if you don't, if you're wondering what that feels like, that's what it feels like. And if you think it feels awkward, it does sometimes. I, I feel anxious sometimes. I'm an anxious person. And so I try to discern, is this anxiety that I'm, I'm sensing because I have to go speak now? Or is this an anxiousness of, of anticipation with what something the Lord is going to do? And, and I have to learn to decide which way it is. And I'm convinced, having done this for, I don't know, 20 some years now in ministry, that the Lord is here doing something in this place. Um, I, I do not desire to convince you. In fact, it is not my role to convince you of that. That is the role of the Holy Spirit. And that he will come and he will do something. This is not an upsell. The message is going to be terrible. Just wait for it. Okay. But God is good. Amen. So A.J. Jacobs, he, is a, he wrote this book here. He is an editor for Esquire Magazine and a New York Times bestselling author. In his 2007 book, The Year of Living Biblically, he describes the role of religion in his early years. He writes these words. He says, I grew up in an extremely secular family in New York City. I'm officially Jewish, but I'm Jewish in the same way that the Olive Garden is an Italian restaurant, which is to say not much. He said, the closest my family came to observing Judaism was the paradoxical classic of assimilation where we put a star of David on top of our Christmas tree. Later in his life, he married and had a child and he said he was becoming increasingly interested in the role of religion and the relevance of faith in the modern world. That is to say, he wanted to learn about living a religious life, but he had no background in religion. He didn't even know where to start and so he embarked on a journey that I suspect many of us have joined him on, uh, following God. He just opened his Bible and began reading it. And he turned that experience uh, of reading the Bible into a hilarious and poignant best-selling book that I have here. And first person to come up after service that wants to borrow it from me gets it. <laughs> after service. Don't interrupt me right now. So the first thing that AJ did was he set out to read the Bible, and he had never done so before. So for four months, five hours a day, he read the scriptures. And while he's reading the scriptures, he's taking copious notes, and he's specifically collecting all of the commands that the Bible has. All of the commands. He estimated that the only way to live a life that was honoring to God was to follow his commands. Would you agree? Hmm. Yeah. 
He thought that if he's going to serve God and follow God, then he's going to follow his commands. So for the next year, after he wrote down this list of commands, yes, for a full 365 days, he attempted to obey every command in the Bible as literally as possible. He vowed to follow the Ten Commandments, to be fruitful and to multiply, to love his neighbor. But he also wanted to obey, obey the hundreds of less publicized rules, uh, things like in Leviticus chapter, Leviticus chapter 19, it says that you can't wear clothes made of mixed fibers. Psalm 33 says that you must play a string, a ten-stringed harp to the Lord. And in verse uh, Leviticus 20, it says that we are to stone those worthy of capital punishment. And so in the third month of his journey of living biblically, A.J. committed to stone blasphemers and Sabbath breakers. You know those people the Bible say is worthy of being stoned. So whenever and wherever he found them in New York City, he stoned them. However, he quickly realized that the Bible doesn't specify the size of the stones. So he went to Central Park and picked up a handful of pebbles and kept them in his pocket. And whenever he saw someone breaking the Sabbath, and it's easy to do in a workaholic city like New York, yes? He would walk up to them, drop a pebble on their shoe, and tell them they're being stoned for breaking the Sabbath. So over the course of the year, his hair and his beard became unkempt. There are a lot of religions, or regulations rather, about cutting hair in the Bible. He wore sandals and he sewed tassels onto his clothes. He even walked with a knotty maple walking stick that he bought online for 25 bucks. He looked and he acted quite strange for 12 full months. And all silliness aside, you can see that merely reading the Bible and doing what it says can cause a person's life to be quite strange indeed. So what are we to do? What if you and I want to read our Bibles and let the words of God shape our lives? Do we run the risk of looking and acting weird as well? Possibly, possibly. But I'm convinced that there is a right way and a wrong way to read scripture. We don't want to misinterpret passages like the one Brian just read to us in Luke chapter 20 that talk about blessings and woes. And even though we don't use that word woe in our modern vernacular, I know enough to say this, I don't want to hear Jesus say it to me. And these seven verses contain what are called the Beatitudes that Brian mentioned. There's another word that, that's another word rather we don't use every day. It just means supreme blessedness. That's kind of fun to say. Jesus is describing how his disciples can experience extreme blessedness. Blessedness. He says that if you're poor, if you're hungry, if you're weeping, if you're being mocked, then you're blessed. But if you're rich, if you're full, if you're laughing, and if people speak well of you, then you are cursed. This seems backwards to us, doesn't it? I thought life was better if we had enough money to eat and drink and be merry. That's what we believe, right? And when does uh, being appreciated and thought, of, uh, thought well of make your life worse? So if we take Jesus' words, Jesus rather at his words, like literally at his words, then our lives need to change in a drastic way. But what if Jesus isn't saying what we think he is saying? What I'm about to say next might sound controversial, but I assure you it is not. <laughs> but you are leaning in now, aren't you? So please extend to me some grace and some time to explain myself before you throw stones or pebbles, whichever you brought with you. Now, when many Christians are asked if they read the Bible, if they think the Bible should be read literally, they, of course, say, yeah, of course. But as A.J. Jacobs has demonstrated, I think that causes a lot of problems. 
I think the Bible should be read to be understood or rather should be interpreted correctly. But a literal reading of every single verse might not be the best way to go about it. And I'm not alone in this belief either. Jen Wilkin is an author and a Bible teacher. She resides in Dallas, Texas, goes to a great church down there called Village, the Village Church. Pastor Matt Chandler is pastor there. She has organized and led studies for women in both the home and the church. She's a, a, an incredible author. She has, she's an advocate for biblical literacy and her passion is my passion as well. She wants to see others become articulate and committed followers of Christ with a clear understanding of why they believe what they believe rooted firmly in scripture. And she says this, quote, now before we abandon the term of literal reading of the Bible, let's capture what's good in it. Yes, we should look for the plain meaning of the text. The Bible is written to be understood. It, it has a meaning to convey. Interpretation is the work of uncovering that meaning. And that meaning was placed there by the author under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Meaning is determined by the author and discovered by the reader. Can I say that again? Meaning in the Bible was determined by the author under inspiration of the Holy Spirit and discovered by us, the reader. The reader does not, and I would add, cannot, must not assign a meaning to the text, but rather the reader works to understand that meaning that the author intended to be drawn. End quote. Ish. I changed some words. Renowned biblical scholar Gordon Fee concurs. He writes that the aim of good interpretation is simple, to just get at the plain meaning of the text, the author's intended meaning. And he continues, but if the plain meaning is what interpretation is all about, then why interpret at all? Why not just read it? Does not the plain meaning simply come from just reading it? Makes sense, doesn't it? And in a sense, the answer is yes to that. But in a truer sense, such an argument is both naive and unrealistic for two factors, the nature of us, the reader, and the nature of scripture itself. I pause here for a moment to just say this. This feels like a lecture for some of you. And I'm sorry that it does. But the Lord has placed on my heart a time that it is time for the people in this church to mature. It is time for us to grow up. These things are going to feel heavy for some time. Please don't stop coming because they feel too heavy. Let the Lord work in you. I was convinced this week that many people are going to start working on their fantasy football team soon. And I love fantasy football. I don't play it, but I think it's awesome to watch people lose their minds at B-dubs on a Sunday night because <laughs> their quarterback didn't do well or whatever. <laughs> many people in this room will spend more time working on their fantasy football team than they will reading scripture. Many, many of us will soothe what aches inside of us through YouTube um, shorts and Instagram reels and and Netflix, then looking to the God of the universe who left words for us to encourage us. I'm trying to help us be people who can understand and read these things a little better. If you're mad at me, you can send your emails to joe at rendicator.org. It's not real. So two factors that cause uh, just reading the Bible to not be maybe be the best 
way of finding the interpretation. Number one, we, the reader, we come to the Bible with all sorts of issues. Say amen. <laughs> First, we live in a Western society, not an Eastern society where the, where the Bible was written. We also live in the 21st century, and much of the Bible was written, wait for it, 3,400 years ago, around 1500 BC. And the New Testament was written in the first century, which is really radically different than the world that we live in today. So we are at an immediate disadvantage when we read verses like this in Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2 in the New Testament says this, teach slaves to be subject to their masters and everything. Teach them to try and please their masters and not to talk back to them. What? With no context to what that means, that, that rises against our modern sensibilities. The mere mention of slavery in the Bible challenges us. But did you know this? Here's a little context for you. That the Jewish law allowed for Hebrew men and women to sell themselves into slavery to another Hebrew And they could serve them for up to six years, but on the seventh year, they were to be set free. What Paul is saying, those of you that have found yourself in such debt that you had to sell yourself into slavery, don't don't do so begrudgingly, but serve your masters and treat them kindly. Okay, does this just change what you thought that verse meant at first? And context leads us into that interpretation and understanding. The second reason that Gordon Fee says that a simple reading of the Bible does not always lead the reader to the plain meaning of the text is because the Bible is a rather complex book. In fact, that's not even true what I just said. The Bible is not a book. It's actually 66 books bound in a single codex. And they were written by over 40 authors that spanned um, about 1,500 years of writing. Not to mention that the authors wrote in so many different literary genres in the Bible. There are law codes in the Old Testament. There's wisdom literature, there's poetry and songs, prophecy and apocalyptic writings. There's letters, like personal letters from one dude to another dude in the Bible. There's biographical and historical narratives. And don't forget those long genealogies in the Old Testament where it feels like you're just reading a page out of the Hebrew phone book. So-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, snore. So when we're asked to read the Bible literally, we could actually say, well, I read the Bible literarily. You see what I did there? It just means that we're taking into account the type of literature the author employed to to tell his part of God's story. That said, Luke's gospel is considered historical, biographical. We are in Luke's gospel. And that means for us to understand the meaning of what Jesus' words spoken on the Sermon on the Plain mean, we have to have an historical context for them. Are we okay? Okay. All right. The Sermon on the Plain was delivered as part of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. Galilee is this northern part of this area that we call modern-day Israel. In that time, it was called Palestine. So there's northern Galilee, there's the Samaria area, <laughs> that was fun, Samaria in the middle, and then Judea down towards the, the southern part. And all of these territories were under Roman occupation by the Roman Empire. And, and all these areas, in the time of Jesus, they were going through a tumultuous time politically, economically, and socially. At the time of Jesus' birth, King Herod was ruler of this area called Palestine. And he was a ruthless ruler. And he came to power through political maneuvering and brutality. And when he died in 4 AD, his three sons took over and divided his kingdom. Herod's reign was a time of great economic development 
and urbanization. And two of the greatest cities in Galilee, the area where Jesus is preaching, two of the greatest cities in Galilee were built by Herod the king. This is also a time of rapidly growing class divide. Historians all point to this. Many people were falling into destitution, especially the rural peasantry like the Jewish people. For centuries, they'd been a simple agrarian people living off of the land, and the typical Jewish family owned a small plot of land, obeyed the timeless rhythms of the seasons for their daily life. But when the Roman construction of larger cities and roads and all this expansion, the folks living in the countryside began to see their lives as farmers changing before them. No longer do they produce their own goods, bartering with, bartering with one another to survive, but they are now also providing for those who live in the city. And this is beginning to stretch the fruitfulness of their crops. Taxes were then levied upon the people to support these massive governmental projects. And without much money, many of the Jewish people were driven to borrow against their land and ultimately lose it when they couldn't pay off the mortgage. Author Roman Montero points out this, that the economic situation under King Herod and his successors was but a mixed bag. On the one hand, it was a time of extraordinary economic development and urbanization. And on the other hand, there was a rapidly growing class divide with many people falling into destitution. So when we read Jesus' sermon with his cult, within this cultural context, hopefully it will help us understand what he's saying better. So let's get into the text, shall we? Do I have any time left? Oh, okay, good. So let's get into the text. First, let's be reminded what Warren Wearsby writes in his Bible exposition commentary. He says this, and hear me when I say it, because I agree with it. This sermon is not the gospel. Say it with me now. This sermon is not the gospel. Nobody goes to heaven by following all the commands or the rules in the Sermon on the Plain. The sermon is not a description of how someone becomes holy and righteousness, or holy and righteous. Right? Dead sinners, Wearsby continues to say, cannot obey the living God. The first thing must be done. They must be born again, filled with the Holy Spirit. Then their life can be sanctified and changed. And Jesus is talking about that sanctification and change and a different mentality for looking at the kingdom of God. God is not giving us rules to follow here. Are you tracking with me? <laughs> I don't believe you. Are you tracking with me? Please, I worked hard on this. If, if this doesn't work out, I'll have to go home and take a nap. It won't bother me. I just want to make sure you guys get it. I start with Wearsby's quote because it's not uncommon for individuals to read a passage like this and come to the conclusion that blessings and woes, which is what Jesus talks about, that they can somehow be earned or avoided. As we shall see, they have more to do, these blessings and woes have more to do with what Jesus has done for us by opening the way of salvation. To most Jewish people, Wearsby continues, the word blessing evoked images of a long life, of wealth, of a healthy family, and a full barn, and defeated enemies. But we see throughout the stories of the Old Testament where God's covenant with Israel included such material and physical blessings. You could, if you're taking notes, you don't have to, but if you want to look at Deuteronomy chapter 28, Job chapter 1, Proverbs chapter 3, and look at some of these Old Testament stories, you'll see that God was leading his people through blessings and woes. And if we took a poll in this room today, we'd probably feel that God is leading his people the same way today. And I disagree. God is leading his people through his his spirit is leading us through his spirit. 
But God used, in the Old Testament, he used his blessings and his curses for his people. It was an intentional choice. He used his blessings and curses as a way to lead his people. With obedience, they learned, came blessing. And with disobedience, came curses. Both of them come from God. And both with a purpose to teach his people to learn to walk in his ways. This is the way that God chose to what? To discipline his people. And after all, they were little children of faith. And the way we teach our children by means of rewards and punishment is no different. The Apostle Paul argues in his letter to the Galatians, with the coming of Jesus, Israel's childhood period ended. And now the people had to mature in their understanding of God's ways. Jesus is using this sermon to explain those new ways. This is going to radically shape what they think, what they know about God. We could all say that we are blessed because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Somebody say amen. Amen. Yes. And we are blessed because of the work that he did, not because we follow all of the rules. You could say amen to that too. Oh, I feel like a little freedom just took off like a butterfly in here. But this kind of thinking was vastly different for God's people in the first century. Jesus was introducing a new way the kingdom way of God. So this new kingdom is described by many scholars as the upside down kingdom. And it's paradoxical and paradoxical to both their way and our way of thinking about what a blessed life is. So let's look at these blessings and woes as pairs in Luke chapter six. Do you have your Bible ready? What does it mean to be poor and needy and hungry? Does that mean you get an automatic pass into heaven? Because he says you're blessed if you are. I don't think that's what Jesus is implying. Look here in verse 20. It says that he lifted up his eyes and looked upon his disciples. So pause here real quick. So Jesus had just come down from the mountain where he had gone up to pray with the Father to choose his uh, um, 12 apostles, the 12 that would then lead his church in a few short years when he dies and goes back to heaven. And um, not only were the 12 disciples near him, but there was probably multitude. There's probably 280 people in this room right now. So just imagine Jesus talking to a group, something like this. And he lifts up his eyes and looks to his disciples, many of them from the surrounding region who understand the cultural context that I just wrote about. And he says to them, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Verse 24, the paradoxical upswing of that says this. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Jesus seems to get right away at the, at the primary social issue that many of the, social, the Jewish people, rather, were experiencing. That is the issue of poverty. To be sure, the people of that time had a difficult time getting by, and there was little reason to believe that things were going to get better. Poverty is truly a hope killer, isn't it? Many of them, like many people now, believed that happiness was derived from having, a wonderful, having wonderful belongings, being, on a high, being in a high position, or taking pleasure in the luxuries and popularity that money can buy. Come on, money. And if you don't have no money, you have no hope for happiness. I don't know if you've ever sat in a boardroom of any marketing strategists anywhere in America, but that is what they sell in the magazines and the television commercials, is they are selling us hope and happiness, and it comes at the cost of dollar bills. 
that our life to be full and measured by any stretch of the imagination to be successful, to be to have a happiness or joy, it somehow must look like the pages in a magazine or the videos we see on television. If you really want your wife to love you, you'll buy that condo in Florida. And then let your friend, Pastor Jeff, use it with his family. <laughs> Thus saith the Lord. <laughs> Did I tell you the Lord is in this place today? I'm not a scary guy. I can be intense, but I don't, I don't mean to be. This is a little heavy for us. Okay, so here we go. So imagine how shocked Jesus' disciples were when they heard Jesus using words to describe happiness or to being blessed that were completely at odds with what their culture said. They came to realize they needed to modify their view on what being blessed looks like. And it needs to be based on something that's more than our circumstances. Yes, yes, yes. And it is my hope that these words that Jesus spoke to them would also bring us hope today. That our current circumstances are just that, current only. That they will change. They are but temporary. Wearsby writes, and I leaned heavily on Wearsby's commentary for Luke here, so you're gonna hear his name a lot. But Wearsby writes that Jesus was not teaching that poverty and hunger and persecution and tears were blessings in themselves. He wasn't saying, oh, you're poor, you're blessed. It's a, it's a blessing to be poor. He's not saying that. If that were true, listen to the logic in this. If that were true, why would Jesus have ever done anything to alleviate the suffering of others? If he says, like he says in verse 20, blessed you who are poor, or 21, that you, you who are hungry, Right? If it's a blessing to be hungry, why does Jesus then multiply loaves and fishes and feed 5,000 people and steal their blessing from them? Is this, is this resonating with anyone? The blessing is not because you're poor and not because you're hungry. The blessing comes from something else and it's not the circumstances that you find yourself living within. This is the upside down kingdom, the way God is intending us to live. And we can get so focused on looking on the here and now and forget the eternalness of what God is and forget the blessing that we have secured in Jesus Christ by his death, his burial, and his resurrection. You have been lied to. This world tells you you need more and you do not. You do not, if you have Christ, you have it. It, there is no more it. It is what you have, all of him. It's a false doctrine in the church, in our world, that says that poverty and self-flagellation leads to righteousness and holiness. Somehow if we just beat ourselves up, if we stay meek and lowly and humble, that somehow we'll become more righteous and holy. And that is just an unscriptural belief. It stands in direct conflict with the stories in the New Testament that show Jesus helping people and lifting their status. But he's pointing to this reality that, that that's not where the blessing is found. Jesus is saying that circumstances don't dictate the blessing, but rather God blesses regardless of the circumstances. Do I need to say that again to someone? 
Circumstances don't dictate blessing, but rather God blesses regardless of circumstances. So Jesus is speaking about an inner attitude that's inside of us. We need to have a different change if we want to enjoy the blessings of the Christian life. Verse 21, moving quickly through this in the last 40 minutes that I have left. It says, uh, verse 21, it says, Blessed are you who are hungry, for you're going to be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep, for you're going to laugh. And the flip side of that, verse 25, it says, But woe to you who are full now, for you're going to be hungry. And woe to you who laugh or find joy now, for you shall mourn and weep. I'm going to tell you a little bit about me real quick. I love um, crying at movies. Anyone? Um, so Friday night, I think it's Friday night. I, I worked most of the day. Uh, my wife, who I'm pretty sure doesn't love me anymore, made me go play pickleball for four hours, right? After I'd already ran four miles that morning and then worked. And so we're playing pickleball all night. I finally go home. I'm exhausted. Have you ever been so tired like you don't even want to eat dinner? Right, that's the thing, right? So... Anyways, I go to bed exhausted and I open up my iPad and I start watching YouTube videos. And I, I ran across a video right before I fell asleep of this musician, he's an artist, and he's, he's singing this song. I'm not even gonna tell you what it is, it's kind of amazing. If you wanna know, just email me, I'll tell you. But um, it, it's an amazing song. He's telling this incredible story about dealing with some mental illness and some issues of hope and, and just all kinds of stuff. And, and as he's um, singing this song, I'm moved by it. Like I'm physically moved, like I'm like a little weepy and I'm like, whatever, that's me. It's, uh, I didn't realize the internet is full of videos of, of things called reaction videos. Anybody know what a reaction video is? Where, they, where you actually watch someone watching this thing for the very first time. Until my iPad ran out of battery at 1 a.m. I was watching these videos of people crying while they watched this video. And I literally was wiping tears with my pillowcase. My wife thought I had lost it. It has taken decades for me to understand that God has made me quite melancholy. I'm not talking about being depressed, although sometimes I struggle with depression too, but I've always had this proclivity to just prefer somewhat drizzly autumn days, right, to sun-drenched pool days that the rest of my family enjoys. <laughs> In my circle, I'm the weirdo. Jesus is saying those who weep now through suffering because of their devotion to him, will in fact laugh or have joy in the end. But those who can laugh now or if they find their joy or their happiness now, as Jesus is saying, that they will come to a stark realization at the end of their lives that they have wasted um, their existence on materialism and social status. And I don't even know what they do on social media now. Is this still thumbs up? I don't like, is that the thing? I don't... Um, not because I'm old, because I'm better than you. I just stay off social media. <laughs> Jokes, guys, help me. I'm trying to lift it up. And Jesus goes on to say, woe to you who laugh now. He's not making an indiscriminate judgment upon laughter. Jesus loves laughter. I believe he had lots of jokes. Have you ever read the thing about an eye getting through the, or a camel getting through the eye of a needle? That's hilarious, if you don't know that. I think Jesus is fun. And I think Jesus himself manifested a good sense of humor. But here he's speaking about those who laugh with derision and a mocking tone. Woe to you who laugh now because you think you got it and they don't. Because there's coming a day when it will all be taken from you. The Bible calls, calls a lot of these things wood, hay, <laughs> wood stubble, 
wood and stubble and hay or whatever, that is going to be consumed or burned in the end. Lastly, in all of these three blessings and woes, poor, rich, hungry, full, weep, laugh, Jesus uses the clarifying word now. He uses the clarifying word now to the point of, uh, to point to a reality of the future. For example, blessed are you who are hungry now, for one day you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will have joy and laughter one day. And he says the inverse is also true. Woe to you who are full now, for one day you're going to be hungry. We've already beat that up. Moving on, verse 22. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you. This is like high school over again. And they revile you and they spurn your name as evil on account of the son of man. Hello, Becca. (laughs) If I could, I've still got a whole lot more to go. I do. I know, not even close. So (laughs) go ahead, play me something nice underneath, but I'm... Ladies and gentlemen, Becca Idol. This is how the band pushes me off the stage. That blowhard, has he finished yet? Let me just say this. I do have some more, I'm gonna keep going, I don't care. Um, I prefer this, honestly. Uh, For those of us in the room who are often disliked, excluded and talked about, we can read that verse with some encouragement, maybe even a little vindication. We see uh, Jesus say, well, you're blessed because people don't like you, but we have to be careful with that line of thinking. It's It's quite possible that the reason people treat you poorly is because you're a jerk. I'm a jerk sometimes. My, my wife reminds me a lot. And honestly, I do jerky things. And maybe that's why people don't like me. I'm not blessed because of it. Being a jerk to others is never commanded in scripture. In fact, we're supposed to be known by our love for one another. Jesus is quick to explain that this distinction, this distinction to his disciples by saying, people are gonna revile you. People are gonna uninvite you to parties not because of who you are, because of who I am in you. That inside of you now dwells the Holy Spirit and and you're going to cause some people to just not enjoy your company any longer. Those of us who've gone through recovery know that there are days you just have to cut off what was, right? And so we choose that. Sometimes it's chosen for us. I do remember a long time ago when I became a Christian, was really trying to serve him and love him. A lot of my old friends who I love and adore still to this day would ask me questions. Jeff, why aren't you going out with us on Friday nights anymore? Why aren't you going with us to the strip clubs and the whatever, right? And I just start telling them about Jesus and it just, and guess what happens? They stopped inviting me. And Jesus says, you're blessed if people, right, push you away for my sake. Not because of who you are, but because of who I am inside of you. 
R.C. Sproul, wonderful Bible teacher and pastor, says it best. He says, in a sinful world, there's only one way for all people to speak well of you. And that is if you are a hypocrite. If you are uh, compromising in your ethic, if you take a changing posture to suit the desires of those with whom you come in contact, everyone will like you. Rather, he says, a person of integrity and righteousness, on the other hand, is bound to alienate some people in this world. Picture this, Christ is the only person who ever lived a perfectly human life. Yes, and yet he was hated by many people. We probably should add that Jesus never hated anyone in return. You don't get to use that as a pass. Well, they, they kicked first, I'm kicking back. They said this first, I'm staying it, but no, it's not how this works. Blessedness comes from God. It is his great wisdom and his great compassion to give it to us. Our circumstances do not change our blessedness. We need to hear the call of Jesus and make our lives about pursuing him, pursuing his righteousness, and nothing else in this world is going to satisfy the way Jesus can. In closing, keyboards at this point. H.H. Farmer wrote that to Jesus, the terrible thing about having the wrong values in life and pursuing the wrong things is that you're not doomed with disappointment when you get them. When you achieve what you want, God gives you what you want. And if all of your desires are just on material blessings and material things in this world, you'll get them. And at the end of your days, you'll find out they just didn't satisfy like Jesus could. Jesus, in the beginning of this sermon on this, we call the Sermon on the Plain, as we just scratched the surface today, he's going to turn our perspective upside down on what this life looks like. The principles of heaven are very different from those of the earth. Don't get sucked into this world's rating system. It is prone to mistakes. You are loved, highly valued in the eyes of God. This world does not see you correctly. This world sees you as a commodity that it can use and spit out when it's finished. God does not use his people. He blesses them. He loves on them. He sees inside of you something that was there before that uncle did that thing to you when you were young. He sees what visions and dreams you had inside of you way before you went through your second divorce and now have become bittered and hardened. He is he's peering into something inside of you, sees value in it. And if you, if you wonder about how much he loves you, look to the cross. For his son, Jesus, his only son came as a ransom, a sacrifice for all of us we could be redeemed and have eternal life with him. Thanks for joining with us today. We would love to support you and have you be a part of our community. So please check out the church at homepage at rendicator.org. 
There you can ask questions, request prayer, find past messages and podcasts, and even contribute to the growth of the church through online giving. Or you can come see us in person on Sunday mornings in downtown Decatur. We can't wait to see you.